0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to V-Radio. This will be part two in my conversations with Derek Jensen. If this is your first time tuning in, please check out my archives, either on my YouTube channel or in my podcasts. My YouTube channel has a lot of stuff on it that my podcast does not, for obvious reasons, um, as I use the video element to communicate. If you want to check out my various social media accounts, you can go to v- or v-radio.us. Uh, There you'll find my Discord channel, Telegram, Twitter, et cetera, et cetera. Because I've found that YouTube, for whatever reason, um, is not always notifying people when I upload new content. So this is my backup plan. Um, Today, once again, I'm happy to have my guest, Derek Jensen, author, teacher, environmentalist, activist, uh, anarchist, thinker. Um, In part one, we talked about Derek's life experiences that led to him becoming an activist, and we had a lot of great discussions also just on some of the issues in the anarchist community and the leftist community. Um, and in particular, I think one of the things that we had you know, gotten into a little bit but wanted to get into more was just the sheer dishonesty going on in the left that is causing problems for legitimate leftists you know, and just the movement's credibility in general. So thanks again, Derek, for coming back on the show. Oh, thanks for having me. Yeah, I mean, our last conversation was fantastic. I got a lot of great, like, um, people were telling me that really enjoyed it. So if some people were sharing it, like, this is critical. You have to listen to this. Like, it was life-changing. So, you know, I think that there's definitely an audience out there for people who are leaning on the left, who feel that things are just, like, getting crazy. And I had another guest on last night who was a – he goes by Nexus. He was a, a resident at the Twin Oaks commune. Um, which is probably one of the best functioning examples of like leftist style, like um, libertarian communism, in our country. And he talked about um, a lot of the woke stuff has more or less taken over over there, and how that's causing problems too. So you know, um, the other thing is, I remember I mentioned this to you, and I actually got some actual statistics about it. But um, somebody did a study where they put together uh, the media trends during the time of the Occupy movement, and it just so happens that the media very abruptly stopped talking about Occupy, stopped talking about the big banks, stopped talking about classism. And then all of a sudden what was trending instead was terms like um, uh, white privilege and, you know, anti-racism and critical race theory. And, you know, just all the other isms, including all the LGBTQ stuff. And one of the things that they kind of capsulated it with was there was a moment when Hillary Clinton during a rally was trying to distance herself from, you know, Bernie Sanders, and really was just trying to make the uh, the whole thing about, you know, identity politics. And she said, Bernie Sanders wants to break up the big banks, but we could do that tomorrow. But what would that do about racism? What would it do about sexism? What would that do for the LGBTQ community? Like, just as in, literally, just to kind of turn the whole conversation in that direction. And as a result, um, Occupy took a huge hit and just kind of fell apart not just from the outside as far as how the media is covering it, but as I mentioned in the last episode, um, we talked about just how these, these isms seem to just be dividing and destroying these movements, and I think it, that it's on purpose. You know, so I also got to listen to you um, go on some uh, panels you know, with other leftists who kind of feel that things are getting out of control. So I guess, is there anything new that you've come across you know, that really sticks out to you about this problem since the last time we spoke?
1: Well, every day we see new lies thrown out. Um, uh, uh, there, there's one I was thinking about when I was thinking about doing this interview. There was, there was one that I saw last week that, um, that that led to sort of a little study or, not, not, or a little story on on how I started to see that the left lies as much as the right does. Okay. So I think you and I are both going to just take for granted that the right lies. Oh yeah. 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 Okay. Absolutely. So we just, we just accept that. And um, anyway, so a position I have long held that is in, that is blasphemy among some people on the left is that I do not have a theoretical problem with the death penalty. And we don't need to discuss that. That's not the. I'm going to make a point about lying in a second, right? And I mean, I think that I have no problem with Ted Bundy getting killed. I have no problem with mm-hmm. there are certain things that one can do that can cause one to forfeit the right to live. And I have no problem disagreeing with somebody and having them disagree with me if they believe that the state should never kill anyone. That's 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 a discussion we can have, and that's great. Of course, sure. that leads to wars. That leads to you know putting in carcinogenic factories, you know, there's direct versus indirect curling. like, let's leave all those aside for a second. And I will finally get to the point, which is, that was one of my openings, maybe 25 years ago, when, into understanding that the left lies as much as the right does. And this is this is this goes back that I noticed that a lot of anti death penalty people would play quick and loose with the facts, and would say if somebody were let off, if their death penalty was overturned because they, because of a procedural error on the part of the police, they might be, they might be counted as factually innocent. And I actually agree that if the police should not have been able to get a search warrant and they did, then that's a problem and the case should be overturned. I agree with that. I agree with what actually happened, but that doesn't mean the person's innocent. That means they were found not guilty on a, on a procedural mistake or on prosecutorial misconduct or some other thing,
0: technicality
1: well tech, i want I, yes, I was thinking about that word, and I didn't want to use it because that's sort of the right wing pro death penalty word uh, and I, fair, I, I want fair. I wanted to go with value neutral language in this and um and anyway, the thing that happened last week was there's a i don't remember the exact the exact wording of it, but there's a billboard in Ohio that just went up a week or two ago that says for every five people executed in Ohio, one man was found innocent. And that seems to be implying that one out of every five people executed in Ohio is, was, was actually not, was factually not guilty. Is, isn't that the implication we take from that? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so nerd that I am, I spent the next several hours researching um, all the death penalty cases I could find in Ohio I and mean, all the death penalty executions. And of all the people executed in Ohio that I found, which was not all of them, but it was a fairly large sample size again, not all of them. So there's certainly going to be some I didn't find all, but two were absolutely no doubters. You know, there's DNA all over the place. There's uh, they pled guilty. They led the, they led the police to the bodies etc. etc. And um one of the ones who claimed innocence, not even his attorneys believed him, because they pled not guilty by reason of insanity. So he's he's a schizophrenic who right. was saying, I didn't do it, but everybody knows he did. And the other one who claimed innocence, these are only claimed innocent, not even were innocent. The other one who claimed innocence did claim it to the end, but he said but there was no way he could explain how he got the dead person's blood on his clothes. Or the dead person's credit card in his pocket. So I would not call it a particularly So my point is it's just it this is something that just came up last week. So I've been thinking about it some. It's just why do that? I, I don't I don't I don't like it when environmentalists do that. I don't like it when when lefties do it. I don't like it when right-wing people do it. I know it happens all the time. I don't like it when Democrats do it, I don't like it when Republicans do it. It's like let's let's approach this honestly and say, you know, this guy killed three people. He's really not a very nice human being, but I don't believe the state should ever kill anybody. And let's go on that level.
0: Well, right. And I, I see similar mischaracterizations, you know, for example, when the Jacob Blake shooting happened, um, there were memes that were going around that literally said that he was breaking up a fight, that he was the one who called the police and that he was relieved that they were there and was just trying to leave. Now, this is totally, factually, utterly incorrect. He was, the police were responding because his rape victim called them and she had a um, personal you know, protection order against him that he was violating. And then at the time, he was basically trying to leave with her car with her kids in it. Now, do I think that this means necessarily that we shoot him in the back eight times? No, that's not what I'm getting at. But that was a legitimately passed around constantly meme that utterly, completely was wrong. And then they very strategically released the first video which only shows him walking around in front of the car and trying to get in while the cops are commanding him to put down his weapon which they also denied that he had, which it turned out that he did. Um, and they, you know, they're like, well, why didn't they try to tackle him? Why didn't they try to tase him? Why did they just go straight to their gun? And people let that narrative go, even though the second video that wasn't released until three weeks later showed that they did try to tase him. They did try to tackle him. They tried to do everything, um, you know, and he kept fighting them. He pulled a knife on them and they didn't even shoot him for doing that. It was about uh, at the moment in question, when he was getting into the car, the woman was screaming that her kids were in the car and it looked like he was going to take off. So that's the truth of what happened. And none of that got brought into the parlance. And I think that part of it is just the tribalism that we discussed a bit in the past show. Like I, I always use the analogy of, you know, you're playing a sport in gym class. We'll say it's volleyball, you know, the, the, gym teacher calls a point for your team but you know the ball was out but you just don't say anything because you want to win so there's that aspect to it um in my own studies of it i've also kind of noticed that there's an awful lot of people making an awful lot of money in this situation um like one of the founders of black lives matter is now worth like five million dollars and you know she has all these book deals and stuff like that and again i want to be clear obviously this is the term i usually use to be safe all deaths matter, and everybody would like the number of people shot to go down as close to zero as possible. But when we blatantly lie about things like this, it becomes very difficult to have a credible conversation with the other side. You know, And there are plenty of other examples of things just like that that have happened. And it's like, say, for example, Donald Trump. I didn't vote for Trump. I wouldn't ask anybody to vote for Trump. You know, But during January 6th, I actually listened to him giving his address before all the crap happened. And he did say, point blank, to peacefully and patriotically let our voices be heard, insinuating he was hoping that they would go over and like protest outside of the Senate. He never said that he wanted them to go break into the building or any of that. But that's not the characterization of what took place. And we are only talking obsessively about the January 6th riot in a frame almost as if it was literally the only riot that even took place in the last five years, as if we weren't burning and just, you know, attacking federal buildings and attacking people all through the summer of 2020. You know, they, it's, and if you bring that up, then they just, you know, they, they get very angry with you. And it's like, look, we can have a legitimate conversation about what's wrong with Donald Trump. We could have a legitimate conversation about what's wrong with police brutality. You know, I mean, you could go down the list. You don't have to lie. And when you do, you don't actually help us. You make know, it worse. You know, we lose credibility.
1: Well, three things. One is we can also have a discussion about when it is or is not appropriate to burn down a building. Sure. Um, I, I think that uh, you know, to take an easy example. Let's say you are a member of the resistance against the Nazis in World War II, and there is a munitions factory, and you have the capacity to burn it down. Good on you. I mean, that's so, so, so we can make a moral case in some cases. And there are other cases where, you know, I mean, obviously to take just an extreme example on the other side, it's not okay under any circumstances to burn down a house with seven children inside, you know, right? so so it's like, there are, this is part of the problem that I see with all of this. I want to get to another point in a second, but part of the problem I see with all of this is that there's, there's a lot of black and white thinking where the right says basically if the right does something, it's okay, and they will excuse it, and if the left does something, it's terrible, and the left says if the left does something, it's great, and if the right does it, it's terrible, and they can do the exact same things.
0: Oh, absolutely.
1: And this – I want to get to more of that in a second, but there's, there's a different point I want to make. Did I talk last time about claims to virtue?
0: I don't, I don't know. Go ahead and elaborate a little bit, and I'll stop you if you did.
1: Okay, because I think to understand any of this, for me at least, we have to understand claims to virtue, which is Robert J. Lifton, uh, probably the world's foremost, psycholo- uh, uh, foremost psychologist, the world's foremost – he understands genocide better than anybody else. Sure, sure. And has written several books on it, great books on it. And one of, the, one of the things he pointed out is that nobody can commit any atrocity, any mass atrocity, without having what he called a claim to virtue. And so the Nazis weren't waging aggressive war. They were taking the Lebensraum that that belonged to them. They weren't committing mass murder and genocide. They were purifying the Aryan race. Uh, Capitalists aren't developing – they aren't killing the planet. They're developing natural resources. And this is is not some sort of fancy thing. It happens on the individual scale too. Something I've said for years, which is more or less true, which is that I have never once in my life been a jerk – Right. I do remember you mentioning that. Anyway, yeah. just, so you always have an explanation for it. Yeah. So. And and when I have, I mean, I've obviously objectively been a jerk, but every time I've been a jerk, I've had it rationalized. And it's the same thing with all this, that, well, we have a reason to burn down this building. We have a reason to invade the Capitol building. We have a reason to occupy the Capitol building, whichever word. We have a reason to try to... And so any... Any outrages, it never works to try to, okay, we can try to understand someone's self-motivation for doing something, and that can help us understand their perspective, but it will, of course, be uh, slanted toward rationalizing what they were doing.
0: And, you know, and a comment I would give to that, because I often discuss the issue of black supremacist movements that are for some reason invisible, um, and they were visible to me because they were actually in my community and led to an awful lot of violence. They were even so influential, they were allowed to do a presentation at my public high school where they informed us that the white man is the marked race of Cain and genetically inferior. Like If you can imagine this being told to you in your community, in your public school, you know, but it, it also resulted in an awful lot of violence. I would get jumped all the time by, you know, black kids who just it was because I was white, you know, no other reason. But so I bring attention to these people and I'm told that, you know, well, you need to understand 400 years of oppression and slavery and all of this. And I'm like, you know, it's interesting because every supremacist racist movement I have ever heard always has a story just like that. Like the Ku Klux Klan will tell you that they're justified because of, you know the you know this many years of oppression of this in the white race and then the germans had their their story and their struggle against the jews they had good reasons to be who they were against the jews you know and i was like the whole point was supposed to be that any kind of generalization of entire other races was a problem that's supposed to be the the hateful down like the hole you do not want to fall into and Go ahead. Excuse me. I
1: was going to say that, and part of the problem is that I I don't know how to say this without being offensive to everybody.
0: Go ahead. But I'm always um, offensive.
1: (laughs) It. So postmodernism had a really great idea, which is there are all these competing narratives. The Germans think that the Jews were victimizing them, and the Jews believe that the Germans were victimizing them, and the Russians believe that the I don't know. The Swedes were were victimizing them, and the Poles believe the Germans were in. Infl- Everybody always believes, and this is true on an individual abusive scale too. That all abusers perceive themselves as the real victims. Generally, okay. So, so postmodernism asked a really good question: of how is it that what do we make? What how do we make sense of the fact that all these competing narratives exist, and we have to, and and how does does one narrative come out on top and how does another narrative get squashed and that's a brilliant and important question you know you can you can talk about christopher columbus as this wonderful explorer and you can talk about him as an enslaving genocidal maniac sure and the truth the the the, the truth is that those are all our perspectives on what really happened the problem is that postmodernism has gone to the answer of well, um, since there are all these narratives that aren't in fact the precise truth, there is no such thing as truth, and there are only narratives, which is the the stupidest possible answer you could come up with right because it, the truth the ahead. truth is there is a physical reality, and we perceive it differently, and we have different perspectives on it. But the fact that we have different perspectives does not mean, that there's not a groundedness, that, I mean, so so somebody, an anti-death penalty person might perceive, oh, this just happened. Sirhan Sirhan got uh, paroled a couple days ago, and or he got he got or parole accepted. I think he's still inside. Um, and some members of RFK's family said to the parole board, you know, it's it's so. I talked to him, and he is such a wonderful human being who has, who is sorry for what he did. He's changed. He's now a wonderful person. And then there were other members of the RFK family that are just shocked and horrified that they approved parole because they said he killed our father and he's terrible. And they have those perspectives. There is some truth, there is some real truth that exists, and we need to remember that, that Whatever that truth is, that that comes first, and you build up analysis off of it. Here's another. Here's another example. I was just talking with a friend of mine last night from who teaches at a university, and the university was saying that um, they, they said that a while ago there was a, a problem of how do we maintain? We have too low a retention rate of first year immigrant students at our university. And my immediate question is, how does the rate at that university compare to rates at other universities? And did they, and, and so their solution was that they need to to make it more inviting to the students, which may may be the case. But I said did they did they ask about the income of the families? Maybe they need to lower the lower the cost of tuition? Uh, Did they, maybe they need to have more scholarships. Um, Maybe at this school, it's actually a higher retention rate than it is for an equivalent cast class of students at a different university. And they don't actually have a problem. And, and she said that the department was adamantly vehemently opposed to looking at any of the factors and simply said, they, they, the only, the only answer they would look at was the SJW answer, of even though the the faculty is about 50% people of color already, that we need to increase that number. And that may be the solution. I am in no way, I'm not wading into this argument at all in terms of what they should do, except to say that if you have a multivariate problem, you need to look at all the variables. And you need to ask yourself, part of the problem is that You know, you talked about the tribalism earlier, and your example of a volleyball game is just great. And in addition, um, like, okay, so I know some people who have attempted to run for various offices in the Democratic Party, and they have not towed the Democratic Party line in every way, and they have been met with resistance at every step with people saying them explicitly, if you don't agree with everything the Democrats say, why are you even bothering? And why are you here? And it's like, I can't attempt to change it from inside. I can't agree with part of it. And then disagree with position. I can't agree with positions one through six and disagree with positions seven through nine. And that's, that, that really makes me think of sort of a fundamentalist or fundamentalist religion or a a cult like uh, atmosphere. I'm done.
0: Oh, no, no, that's perfect. And I actually, it's it's kind of an interesting synchronicity because I just had conversations about, about all those things myself. Um, I want to rewind to postmodernism. As I just started looking at it, um, I, I actually watched a very good presentation on it. And the guy pointed out that what the original purpose of postmodernism was is more or less kind of been corrupted. And now it's just kind of turned into an excuse to say, well, nothing is true. So let's just go with what we feel. And the the problem is, is that leads to lead you down this hole where it's very easy for crowds to be manipulated. And there's and your one tool to stop that is, say, the scientific method or testing, you know, theories and actually, you know, Mm -hmm. thinking rationally is your best defense against that kind of thing. And if you've been taught, well, nothing's actually true. um, You know, they've also demonized, as I mentioned in the previous episode, they've demonized the scientific method itself. Rational and logical thinking have been labeled as, quote unquote, whiteness. Um, and people like there was I told you about the incident where they told, you know, Brett Weinstein that he needed to stop demanding that people use logic and reason. You know, so um, that that's the problem. And Jordan Peterson talks about postmodernists all the time. And so I went and studied on it a little closer and I, I totally get what he's saying, because when you want to say there's no objective truth, here's a really ironic point about this. So George Orwell in his own writings who was a socialist, a lot of people don't remember this, which is why it's ironic that capitalists find themselves quoting him all the time because they don't understand that he's actually a socialist who is trying to write stuff to warn leftists that we are susceptible to this. These are things that can happen to us like if we are not careful. That's what Animal Farm was about. You know, but also his in one of his other writings, he flat out states if you get to a point where the people in authority are trying to eliminate objective truth, then that is an immediate sign that some form of authoritarian something is, is trying to come into place. And I'm paraphrasing a bit, but that's the point that he was making. And then in 1984, we were starting to change the names of words all the time to the point that people's brains have just turned into mush so that you can just ply it like clay you know, that's the whole point of like changing the meanings of words, like the, the change, attempting to change the definition of racism, um, attempting to change the definition of gender, you know, all of the different things that they're doing right now. And then how do they enforce it? Well, they've taken logic away from you. You're not allowed to do that. You just kind of have to obey. And if you don't, then we're going to psychologically torture you. It's ironic because in the 1984, that situation literally plays itself out. It's like they're trying to adjust this guy's thinking by torturing him until he agrees to just start saying things that are not true. And, you know, that's why I always talk about the Ash conformity experiment, because in that situation, you know, you're sitting there in a room full of people and they're all saying something that's wrong and you're kind of pressured to go ahead and go along with it, you know, but you do a little better if somebody stands up and is also saying the right thing. So, you know, that was just kind of a reviews points. But, you know, as far as to like... You know, when it comes to the dogmaticism, you know, that's the word I would use for what you were describing. It's absolutely true. They want absolute total obedience to all of the facets of whatever it is. The Democratic Party does this, but the progressive movement, the leftist movement, the communist movements, the capitalist movements, they all do it. And I don't even think that's a natural way of doing things. So you take a guy like Bernie Sanders, who is basically a lifetime independent, who um, was more or less socialist in different grades throughout his life when he was finally done He wasn't like a Marxist. He was like a, uh, well, where he is now is like a Nordic model. Let's be like Denmark kind of guy, you know, but he was pro gun rights. And so he had to try to like pigeonhole himself into the democratic mold. And they're very anti-gun, you know, and, but he had to do that because those people hold the control of all the ballots. You either play their game or you just don't get to play, which was also, I might add, not actually intended in any way by the founding fathers, not that they're great people, but they wrote the constitution without political parties in it for a reason. And these are, this is one example of many reasons. And if people want to check that out, I did a whole show just about that. But no, I agree with you. And the fact that it's, it's so dogmatic and that the, the means to enforce the dogma is not to come at you and say, well, these are the reasons we believe what we believe and try to have a persuasive conversation it comes down to this. Like, I'll give you an example. I was on a private, like, secret Antifa group recently, and they brought up um, Abolish the Police. Well, one of them, actually, the conversation started with, how do we handle people who feel that defund the police is not working? And then somebody said, well, we don't need to defund them. We need to abolish them. So all I did was ask a couple of polite questions. I said, what are you going to replace it with? And they said, well, our uh, collective will get together and You know, we will, you know, mutually have like safety organizations and all this stuff. You know, basically the typical answers, you know, and when I said, so what are you going to do when the cartel shows up? And they're like, well, we'll defend ourselves. Do you think us Antifa militants are just going to step down? And the funny thing is, is that um, they started immediately asking the admins to ban me within seconds, just for asking, you know, direct questions that I think are important questions you should ask if you're going to say something like abolish the police. We talked about that in the last show, too.
1: Um, But I... Donate. I wonder I wonder if those uh anarchist militias, by the way, if they might I don't know, might not be a bad idea for them to wear some sort of uniform so that uh people can know who the safety militias are. And they might want to be armed in case the cartel people are really scary. And I don't know, they could call themselves the police. <laughs> I mean, I mean the, the, the thing that a lot of people... Sorry, go, I'll, I'll either say something now or later. Which would you prefer?
0: Well, let me just finish this one quick point. Yeah, yeah, great. Go ahead. was very ironically, the last thing I said that got me banned was that what got the anarcho-communists that were the most successful in history, the ones in Spain, killed was because of their inability to organize themselves, to fight off, ironically, the fascists, because Hitler and authoritarian communists, Stalin... Work together to slaughter the revolutionaries in Spain. And the historians, including George Orwell, who was there, will tell you that the reason they failed to defend themselves is because of this kind of non-hierarchical structure to their self-defense. And ironically, the recent things that just happened with Antifa getting their butts kicked in Portland and L.A. were both situations like that. They're now bickering on Twitter about, well, you didn't follow anarchist principles, you know, and they came organized and they beat the crap out of Antifa. But anyway, go ahead
1: well it, this this all ties into a really important point, which is that did we talk last time about um Mumford's uh, mega machine? Maybe go ahead and mention it again okay so it, it I think the most important invention of Western society in terms of it conquering the planet, which I don't think is a good thing um sure. is is not. The screw is not gunpowder, is not, of course, the West didn't invent gunpowder. But anyway, it's not the screw. It's not um, metallurgy. I think the most important invention, and I'm following Mumford on this, is the mega machine, which is what he called the, um, his name for the military-style, top-down, bureaucratic organization. And humans, I think, are fundamentally contentious. I don't think we're evil. I think we're contentious. We we pick at each other, we we snap at each other, we get mad, and then we get over being mad, and then we get even madder and then we say we don't like you anymore. And and so it's extraordinary to be able to get a thousand people or ten thousand people or a million people to get along well enough to build pyramids or run an army and invade a country or to sell Coca-Cola. It doesn't actually matter. That's one of the beauties of the mega machine is you can use it for anything you want. You can have it. You can make a mega machine that transports uh, timber. You can make a mega machine that transports Jews to death camps. The, the machine is a, is a tool and it's humans in interchangeable parts. And the problem, and I think this is the biggest problem in the world is that literally is that once some group develops the mega machine, they have a competitive advantage over other groups and they can conquer them and organized. There's a great line by God. I can't remember his name. Um, I've cited it in two different books in one book. I said that the line is basically um, the West won the world by its capacity to to inflict organized violence People in the West often forget this. People elsewhere never do. And in one book, I focused on the word violence because the world has been conquered by force. And in another book, I focused on the word organized because, because there have been a lot of people who have fought back against um, the the expansion of the mega machine, but for the most part, they have done it not in as organized the the militaries have not been as effective as the western military and the 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 thing that that brings all this up is i'm just making the point that this is a a fundamental flaw in a lot of anarchist thinking that that the 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 larger um technologies that we use require certain social structures and a great example of the, the the lunacy of some of the more lunatic anarchists is, um, is sewage treatment plants that
0: if you you haven't talk about
1: that. Okay. Okay. So we'll just skip that then. It's just, Mm -hmm. you're going to have to have, they say we're going to have a way of life with nobody has a wage economy. That's great. If you have, you know, 75 people living in a place that they can collectively raise food that's great if you're having a commune, except people are still going to have to work. Um, well, it's oh, just right. it's not a wage job.
0: And and I agree with that. And I actually just talked to that about that, ironically, with my previous guest because of him being a Twin Oaks resident. You know, they had to solve a lot of these problems, and it just kind of amounts to you have to create an atmosphere that's like a family atmosphere, and that's actually a lot easier to do with smaller groups than large ones. But the main reason I brought up Antifa again was just to point out that they wanted me banned within about three comments. I didn't say anything like um, right is good. I didn't say, you know, police are awesome. I didn't. I just asked them some fundamental basic questions about what their plan was. And that was enough to trigger them to want me out of there. And that's actually ironic because when Jacques Fresco went to the young communist meetings like way long ago, um, this is like back when soapboxers were literally on soapboxes. He was over 100 years old. Um, you know, he started asking them questions. Like, so, what are you going to do to deal with the corruption that can happen and the leadership? And they threw him out of the meeting. They said that he, you know, he was a deviationist. He wasn't following Marx, so they couldn't have him there. You know, it's like, and if we have to defend our positions by lying, as we mentioned earlier, or censorship, um, you know, and protecting ourselves from outside forces, that starts to sound to me more like, say, a religious cult that, you know, like, if you remember during the satanic panic, it was all about making sure kids don't get exposed to d because then they might not want to be Christians anymore. You know, um, if that's how you have to protect your positions, then you don't have good positions. If you can't answer basic questions, you know, then you just, what it ends up doing, you know, actually, that's what my leftist friend from yesterday talked about. He's like, man, I was looking at this, and he's like, I'm an ardent feminist, but He's like, all these anti-feminist arguments are pretty well structured, and I'm watching people try to argue with them, and they're not p- spending the time to make good arguments. They're just kind of getting emotional and calling people names. And I'm, he's like, I still am a feminist, but I, I can't get behind that. It doesn't work. you know. And I, I guess part of it is that it seems like maybe some of them, like, I mean, I've dealt with this before, that the, the attitude towards the right on the left, and I'm sure the same thing is, is happening the other way. There's no question. But I'm trying to clean my own house, so to speak you know, is that we just, they dehumanize the other side. They don't just want to defund police, for example. They dehumanize police. They don't, you know, they're making statements like anybody who voted for Donald Trump should not be allowed to have a job anymore. And they track those people down. If they can find out they voted for Donald Trump, we're going to find those people. You know, like it's literally to the point where they just feel, and this is where things start to head closer and closer and closer to the totalitarian communist trap that unfortunately because critical theory books that the kids are reading right now literally say that authoritarianism can only come from the right these kids don't realize that there's a there's a whole other danger that can totally happen to you you know that the left is just as capable of this that those ideas can be corrupted in exactly the same ways with the exact same results but And when we're also talking about leftist lies, however, unfortunately, what also is happening is that in our universities, these kids are being taught that every negative story that we've been told about Stalin, every negative story that we've been told about Mao is all lies and propaganda. And it's not true, you know, and that was actually something Yuri Bezbinov talked about. That was the Soviet KGB defector I told you about was that once ideological subversion, which is their intentional psychological warfare that they use to destroy a country is in place you're going to find that it's harder and harder and harder to have reasonable conversations with people. Like he literally described that, you know, he's like, for example, you know, for the types like Antifa, only when the boot is on their throat will they get it. He's like, they're not, he's like, I could take them right now, because this is during the 80s, to the concentration camps and show them the concentration camps that are for political dissidents, for anybody who pissed off Stalin or whoever was in charge, not for people who necessarily did anything wrong you know they won't believe it he's like only when they come for them and then what happens is that now that they have no use for you because like totalitarian authoritarians certainly have nothing you know have no use for antifa past their point of usefulness that's where the useful idiot concept comes from then antifa thinks because they've been conditioned to believe so well if i don't like what the government is doing i'll just start burning down buildings the difference is is that in an authoritarian commu- um, situation they're going to shoot you you're just going to die you know, like you know, Keniman Square is an example of what happens if you try to do that against a totalitarian state. And that's what worries me: is that we're lying about this. We're we're creating a scenario where people are being encouraged to be dogmatic and not to think anymore. We can't even have reasonable conversations about the things we disagree with. This has two major other other major conflicts: is it drives people away from us. It, it may you know, like they go, well, I don't want to be part of anything that's that crazy. Then they start thinking to themselves. Well, man, if they lied to me about Kyle Rittenhouse or they lied to me about, you know, the death penalty or they lie what else are they lying to me about? Are they lying to me about other leftist principles? And then they start rethinking it. And then you make them feel real uncomfortable because they're deviating. And then they go find themselves over hanging out with conservatives. And then suddenly, whammo, you know, you lost someone. And they just they it's become so elitist and snotty that they're like, well, good. We didn't need them anyway. You know,
1: go ahead. Yeah, a couple things. One of them is, and stop me if I said either of these last time, that um, I saw maybe six months ago or a year ago, I saw a video by a civil rights attorney who has won major civil rights awards for uh, his clients um, on civil rights cases. And he said that one of the problems – with his field is that when he goes in with a civil rights case, um, the jurors are so used to being lied to by civil rights attorneys who grossly, grossly exaggerate the insult. And uh, that, that when there is a real insult and he represents the client, he has to not only start at ground zero, he has to start at ground negative 10 because he has to, convince them that he's not a liar. Right. That the, the lies are just so... And we know that lies are pervasive in attorneys. And then I hadn't really thought about it, but he was saying among some civil rights attorneys, it's, it's even worse. And this didn't surprise me. Um, and this was, again, a guy who's a civil rights attorney saying exactly what you're saying, which is, this drives people away from our cause. Because you can only lie to people so long. I mean, you can lie to people for a long time, but they... Lies are very expensive to maintain. And if, if there is some sort of kernel of truth is able to get through enough, then, then the whole facade starts to collapse. And, I mean, this is true whether we're talking about a religious fundamentalist or an anarchist fundamentalist or, or any other sort of fundamentalist. Um, so I think, I mean, you and I are obviously agreeing on the necessity of, of critical thinking and how, again, if you're not allowed to bring facts into a discussion, then the only two ways you can win really are either, um, through lying or through, because if there's no, if there's no reality, there is no such thing as a lie or, or through censoring the other person, um, because you can't win a debate. It's not possible to win a debate with without the use of facts. Exactly. Or, or logic.
0: Right. And that's why they're trying to push the need for facts out of their minds to think, well, you don't need facts. You know, um, I've been listening to a lot of critical race theory stuff that leaks out, and they're telling kids that um, you shouldn't talk to people who don't agree with you, and that if somebody is making – an argument that you find problematic, that you don't have to listen to them, like, as in, like, there's actual school policies that tell you, you can tell the person to shut up, you know, um, they were teaching teachers how best to censor a student for saying anything that is problematic, you know, and the funny thing is, is that we're not talking about, again, it's, it's it, these are things that are easy to say, oh, well, obviously, we don't want some kid getting up and saying Zig Heil and giving a Hitler salute, but that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the problematic and the bizarre terms of the current woke that just seems to be this amorphous thing. That's why I always compare it to religious persecution because the inquisitor can conveniently change the definition of what a witch is to suit the circumstances, to be able to achieve that, what they want, which is a conviction. You know, they want to find their pound of flesh. You know, they want to get their virtue points for taking down another witch and burning them, you know, and especially because of the current embrace of violence, what concerns me is like, when they redefine words, so for example, what is harm and, and what is violence? You know, violence used to just kind of invoke maybe some people from our generations. So somebody hit someone, but no, now violence is I'm a trans person and somebody said um, a pronoun wrong. That's violence. Right. Even if the, and even if the person didn't intend to do that, that's the other thing that's in all of these documents. You know, your intention is not as important as the effect. Well, if you leave the effect up to the people who are offended, you know, like I remember when I was watching Brett Weinstein's Witch Hunt, they were saying things like, we will tell you what is racist. We will determine for you what is racist and what is not, which allows them just to be offended anytime they want. And then you're racist as soon as they feel like it, even if it doesn't fit any criteria that makes any sense. You know, that's actually what was going on in that conversation I told you about where they said you need to stop demanding that people use logic and reason was that they were arguing with him well you may not have intended to say anything racist but you made you hurt a bunch of people you harmed them you know you hurt their feelings and he's like but that's not what i said and then you know he's like well you need to stop demanding that people use logic and reason you know that, that's just crazy you know and this is not a foundation especially if you guys these people want to be anarchists you can't have an anarchist society with people who can't think so go ahead
1: well it- Okay, I, I, I am completely appalled by the uh, the notion that uh, calling a man who identifies as transgender he is violence. That's just that's just nonsense. Right, and I want to throw out a counterexample here and try to find us try for us both to find to I don't know model facts and critical thinking for a second. I don't know. Um, but I wrote about in World War II or after World War II at the main Nuremberg trials, the only person who was executed uh, for the, the, the crimes, who was not a part of the military or the government, was Julia Stryker, who ran the newspaper Der Sturmer. And the prosecution successfully argued that without his absolutely overwhelming, relentless propaganda against the Jews, there could not have been a Holocaust because there would not have been the public behind it. Right. And I don't believe – I'm going to try to be careful. I don't believe that I disagree with that assessment. And so, in that case, and Sturmer hanged, I'm, I'm sorry, Stryker hanged. And in that case, it is legal precedent. And, and you can disagree with this. I'm not going to get offended. And I don't even know if I completely agree with it. But in this case, they agreed the harm done by his writing was so extreme and so necessary to the Holocaust that he deserved to be hanged. So, in this case, and whether he deserved to be hanged or not is not the point the point is that he was punished for nothing but words and so, i can so, i can see where so, maybe
0: punished but i don't know if that i would execute him for that that's a good point
1: so let's let's but let's go to the more basic question of they were arguing essentially that his words were necessary to the violence and that's the exact same argument that the sjw's make even though i find their argument absurd right so, but, so how how do i how do I help me to uh, relieve my cognitive dissonance, or maybe we shouldn't relieve my cognitive dissonance because maybe cognitive dissonance is a good thing, you know? but <laughs> but, but, help, let's let's explore this cognitive dissonance for just a moment. If you see what I'm trying to get at.
0: Sure, sure. Um, I think that the the problem is is that it seems as though there are things that they really want to be true. Um, and then they get into that. I think that's one of the biggest problems with this whole issue is that scientists, for example, are supposed to divorce themselves from emotion so that they can clearly think about what's in front of them. Now, I don't mean ethics. They don't just, you know, you're not supposed to, you know, you don't want to be a Nazi scientist. But the point is, is that um, they have an emotional attachment to what they want to be true. So going back to the trans issue, I wrote extensively, well, actually did videos, that where I literally read because I actually had like more of a motive beyond just any issues of activism. I was ready to go along with whatever it is that the science said about trans athletes in sports, just as an example. Um, and I, I saw that the situation was so polarized and dumb that I realized that the best way for me to learn about it would be to actually read the papers myself, meaning even the ones I had to pay for to read. Um, I did two episodes about this topic. And this in the second one, I literally just read directly from the papers. And here's the problem. The papers are very clear that even on two years of testosterone replacement therapy, you will still retain, like you only lose 5% of your muscle mass. You retain all the bone density. You retain the organ differences because their hearts are bigger. The lungs are better. This is just the facts. This is the truth. Um, And I also read all of the stuff that the people on the other side of it want to you to read and one of them was a study where even the person doing the study acknowledged that their study was limited they only had eight people in their study um and that there were still advantages and that the, the person who was trans i might add who was in the, doing the study still said well we should still let it happen anyway and then this other one that they commonly toted was that they had that the, the study claimed to have read a lot of other papers about rules you know, in regards to sports participation and that there is zero evidence that there are any physical advantages to being a trans, you know, female athlete competing with biological females. That's what this paper concluded. And then I read the other ones, you know, and the ones that were done where they literally had like I think it was about three hundred and fifty people in the Air Force you know, and they compared all of their participation. And their, you know, basically just what happens so far as like, you know, how many of certain exercises they can complete. And those are the ones who came to the real conclusions. Only a 5% reduction in muscle mass. The difference between males and females in muscle mass is sometimes as much as 30 to 40% in different areas of your body. So 5% loss is like next to nothing. You know, it doesn't change your really anything, um, you know, and so in order to get around this issue, first of all, you will notice they lie constantly and say that the science is on their side. And the fact is, I read it. It's not. Um, you know. And secondly, if you dare bring up the fact that the science is not on their side, then you are transphobic, evil, bad, you know, whatever. Um, and more than that, this is also in the entire time I've been a journalist since 2008 – the only time I have ever been doxxed and had my life threatened was because of this video that I did where I make it plain. I don't hate trans people. I'm not afraid of them. You know, I've had trans roommates. It's not it's not like that. This is the this was solely for the point of the physical realities of the situation. And so their answer to it is to just shame, attack, threaten or get what we did at the Wii Spa, you know, which was which they're still doing stuff like that. You know, in fact, ironically, also along the lines of lies on the left, they stabbed someone in the chest. A guy from Antifa did. And so they tried to spin this to say that the guy in question was like trying to kill him with a skateboard. The problem is, is there like six different angles of video on that? And it's very clear that that's not true. And I did a video showing that. And I also did a video pointing out in that same video that Antifa hits people over the head with skateboards brutally all the time. So it was just silly. But anyway, it, there is a need for them to twist reality to fit their narratives, to fit their emotional desires, and the response to you bringing that up is, is not in, in any way rational. It's, it's persecutive. It's, it's violent in, in many cases. I mean, and, and Antifa, like we talked about this last time, the Wii Spa, on July 3rd, there's video of them just walking up and beating up soccer moms. You know, I will say one more thing about this the funny thing is, is that L.A., the same place where that happened, also has a problem with MS-13, the cartel gang killing and like st- like actually killing trans people. Yet Antifa's not showing up in the park where these people hang out. You know, they're I- showing up at the Wii Spa to beat up soccer moms with paper, you know, plasterboard signs.
1: I wonder why. <laughs> Me, too. Did we talk before about the R. D. Lang's Jack and Jill? No. Go ahead. Okay, I think this is this is some really important insight, I think. R.D. Lang, the psychiatrist, talked about if Jack for Jack and Jill are in a relationship of some sort, and if Jack succeeds in forgetting something, that's of no use if Jill keeps reminding him of it. So what he needs to do is to get her to forget as well and to feel guilty for bringing it up. So if if Jill brings up something that is inconvenient to Jack, Jack will not merely say, um, I don't want to talk about it. He'll say, um, it didn't happen that way. Or he'll say, that's trivial. Why do you keep bringing that up? Or he'll say, um, he could punch her. Because obviously if she brings something up and he punches her and then she brings something up again and he punches her, she can figure out reasonably quickly to not bring that thing up. And then if he keeps doing it long enough, she will forget herself. And that's the whole point of all of this is – of this in this Jack and Jill situation is to – so if if Jack – is trying to forget that he's fundamentally abusive, and Jill keeps reminding him. He's going to make her stop reminding him. And I'm making this sound much more esoteric than it is because it happens all the time. That, mm-hmm. um, and it 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 explains for me a lot of these, um a lot of the problems in discourse in general. That um, if you. If I mean, and I'm going to get in big trouble for saying this, too, but mm-hmm. if, you know, when we talk about Black Lives Matter, if we talk about the guy who's on trial right now in Houston, Texas, a black guy who raped and murdered his four-month-old daughter, if we asked, did her black life matter, then people will get really, really angry. They won't have a rational discussion of, you know, we really want to focus on police, police killings. And I would love it if we could have a discussion of some of the main causes of deaths among young black males and an open discussion where we put everything on the table and then – we don't try to shut down the parts of the conversation we don't like. So, and the, the cops do this too. The cops pretend there is no police brutality quite often. And the the, the BLM people pretend that there is no black on black violence. And, you know, it's it's just, it's the same thing we've been saying all along is that I so believe in the medical model that to, to provide or the engineering model, you have to figure out what the problem is before you can solve it. And if, if you're going to do, if you're going to design a bridge, but you are not going to take into account um, harmonic oscillations, that bridge is going to fall when soldiers march across it, or when the wind blows at a certain frequency. And in engineering, it's pretty straightforward. You know, you have to you have to look at the problems that are going to happen and address them with an open mind and I just don't see that. And it it both breaks my heart and scares me.
0: Well, and, and it's also I don't think that they recognize the damage that they're going to do. We talked a little bit last time about the fact that, for example, the First Amendment is the only reason we even have a leftist movement. Um, you know, that they would have if they could have censored us back when J. Edgar Hoover was in charge, they absolutely would have. You know, um, and they don't see the value in it because they think we're winning now. So it's good. They don't understand that humans cannot be trusted with that power. Um, that's why I say censorship is not just a concept, it's a mentality. You get into the mentality that, well, I don't like what you're saying, so therefore I can just shut it off. Which, but, by the way, I, oh, I,
1: I completely agree with you. And yeah. that doesn't mean, by the way, I just need to put this in because of some things that have happened to me in the past. Sure. That doesn't mean that I – that okay, me stopping somebody – Um, so there have been times where people have accused me of censorship because they will write me a letter that says how much they hate me (laughs) and I don't respond to it or I block them and they'll say, you're censoring me. And I just want to be clear in, in, in my personal life, the only people who have ever said you're censoring me are people who were being abusive and calling me nasty names. And I said, don't call me nasty names. And they said, don't censor me. Right. And so I just, I, I, want to make a distinction between uh, – I am not even denying them a public platform of they can go on to anarchy.news and say how much they hate me. I'm not denying them that platform. That's the difference. I'm just saying I don't need to listen to you.
0: Right. And I think that's actually, I mean, I don't, I don't put up with that. I I, I mean, I tell people in my, my YouTube comments that I encourage them to debate, but if there's a guy who's just sitting there shit posting the whole time, he's gone. I don't have any time for that. You know, but it also points out though, that I'm not like, as you said, I'm not going somewhere and saying he can't comment on someone else's videos. You know, I'm not saying that he can't make his own videos to talk about my videos. That's where it becomes a problem. You know, by no means, you know, I think that every, every human interaction should be, you know, with consent, you know, And, you know, within reason, of course, you know, if somebody's not going to consent to me stopping them from hurting someone, well, then obviously that's a different issue. But at the same time, I I don't think that what they don't understand is that censorship, because you don't want to be personally attacked, you know, and that you're only going to censor, say, what's going on in your living room. Obviously, that's fine. It's when I think that's part of the problem is that they've kind of come to believe that it's harmful. They even use these words it's harmful for you to speak from a different political perspective in my presence. It's violence. Even like I just talked to a teacher, his name is Paul Rossi and he was a whistleblower on the, the crazy over the top critical race theory stuff that was going on in his high school in New York. And, you know, they said that he did harm to children just because he asked questions about the curriculum. They said that it was you know harmful and violent speech just because he even counteracted the narrative in any way. Um, And that's where it becomes an issue. And that's ironically why when I did my bit about the censorship, I, you know, I used a picture of Nazis burning books, you know, because ironically Nazis were burning an awful lot of communist books. They didn't care for, you know, leftists either. Um, You know, um, and it was censoring social media in the name of, you know, uh, safety and protecting people from dangerous ideas, you know, and that's, kind of what i mean antifa for example in their own ideology they openly say that they have the right and more importantly the duty to physically attack people who have not physically attacked them over their ideology because they believe that that is self-defense you know the funny thing is is that they are trying to cover up for that as much as they can but it, it's it's Anybody who's been around them, especially when I was at Occupy, knows that that's what they say because they're very open about it when there's no cameras rolling. It's in Mark Bray's book, The Anti-Fascist Handbook. He's just very subtle about how he explains it. But they believe that attacking people because you're just trying to prevent the possibility that fascism might take hold. So, you know, you have the right to attack somebody just for talking about it. Um, and the problem is, is that you can't just you, you can't trust these kids, especially when they start getting power mad, which is what happened, ironically, to Antifa in L.A. Because now they're going to rallies that it doesn't even make any sense, just to attack people. So oh for- my god!
1: I thought it was so funny the anti-maskers versus yep. Antifa, yep. because yep. Antifa is fighting people, and I'm I'm not getting into the mask question at all. That's not the point here. The sure. point is that, an, that anarchists, or so-called so, so anarchists, were attacking people who were opposing a government mandate. Right? Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't, I, whether, you, whether or not you agree that the, the people should or should not wear masks, it's like, dude, where are your libertarian principles? Where are your anti-government principles? I don't, it doesn't make any sense to me.
0: And that's actually the protest where they finally stabbed somebody. And he had to be taken away and is still in critical condition because they pierced the edge of his heart. So they were willing to kill someone over this issue of that, which it just doesn't. And the thing about the Wii Spa, like, I mean, OK, if if there was like actual violence going on, that would be different. You know, like, say, MS-13, you know, killing and stabbing people in L.A., Well, nobody's going to do anything about that. You know, but that's not what's going on at the Wii Spa you know um but they had they had a huge group of LA Antifa there and they're even calling these people fascist and racist when that's not even what they're there for you know like that has nothing to, it was almost like they were just doing it to
1: have an excuse to go out as a gang and beat people up which well, i can't a, go ahead that that's exactly what it is i mean it's really not frankly that different than football hooligans i mean it's just it's people looking for an excuse to fight and and Well, right, and and the right
0: gets that too. There's no question that there are people who do that, you know. And that's I often have to tell people this. It's like, well, yeah, we already knew that that was a problem. It's like, you know, I mean, does the right lie? Like, now that this Afghanistan stuff is coming up, I've had to dig up all my old videos about that topic because people have forgotten all the lies that the Republican Party threw at us to get into those wars. You know, especially guys like George Bush. I'm like, just shut up. I was like, you, 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 you know, all the people who should not be talking, it's you shut up, you know, about George Bush and his involvement with getting over there in the first place, you know, but um, it, it, there's no question about that they lie. And, you know, and they have people who do that, too. I, I think what was it somebody said, I can't remember what who, who the thinker was, it was that movements like this come, sometimes give people permission to do what they already wanted to do, yep. which is they want to go punch people, they want to go hit people you know, um, and, and this, this gives them the justification. It's like John Cleese did a, a bit once called John Cleese versus extremism. And he just listed off, you know, people talk about extremism and then all the negatives, they never talk about the positives. It makes you feel good. You can just justify being a complete shithead to people and say, it's just because these people are such terrible persons, you know, and I'm paraphrasing, but he, he nails it. And the funny thing is, he's like, and it gives you enemies, You know, if you would prefer the right, then you have these enemies, and he lists them off. And if you prefer the left, these are your enemies. And of course, both of them had moderates as their enemies, because anybody who's not as crazy as them is also their enemy. You know, which is why you get people saying, you know, liberals get the bullet too. Um, You know, that shows up at you know certain protests and rallies. The the point is, is that you know, when it comes back to the lying, all of this stuff hurts our credibility. And I also, I've, I've seen studies that supposedly, if you lie a lot, it actually does damage to your brain. Um, I, I, I unfortunately don't have the exact name of the study on me right now, but somebody shared it with me because of my ex-wife, um, that people who get into the habit of lying and lying and lying and lying, that it actually eventually rewires your brain in such a way that it makes it difficult, um, you know, for you to perceive reality yourself. You know, you start to believe your own BS and i've seen that cuz i know a girl who's like probably the most habitual chronic liar i've ever met and she raised two children and when you talk to her children they'll tell you the most fantastical obviously incorrect stuff all the time you know so it's it's something that you know can be taught to people and they get conditioned to it you know and unfortunately it unravels society, and maybe you know some of the anarchists are thinking that that's what the way they want because they all want you know society to finally fall. But that's not the kind of situation that you want to try to convince everybody. Okay, now that society has fallen, let's all be peaceful. We don't need the state. We don't need police. You know, we can all just behave like brothers, you know, comrades or whatever you want to call them, and everything will be fine. You know, now that we've gotten rid of the evil state. The state was the reason for all these problems you had. And, you know, and the problem is, is that the sheer madness that will that will be in place if if they actually succeeded in destroying society through these means it is not a is not a world anybody wants to live in, anarchist or not.
1: Um, yeah. What was the what was the um, antagonist in the first Mad Max movie? What was his name?
0: Oh, my goodness. I can't remember. But I know who you're talking about a guy who like wore a hockey mask.
1: No, 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 no. Mad Max was um, Toe Biter was the guy's name, I think. Mm-hmm. Anyway, um, yeah, yeah. I, I, I think if there are a lot of anti police activists who have tried to go in and organize for people to support removing the police from poor neighborhoods, and they never get anywhere. And the reason they never get anywhere is because um, there needs to be a proven alternative. Um, because, as you've said, with the the gangs in LA that um, a lot of times the police are not even the most well-armed or well-organized group in the area. Right. You mentioned
0: that too. I remember that. It's a very good point.
1: So there's there's three things I want to say here. One of them is, um, I don't remember who said this, but um, unquestioned assumptions are the real authorities of any culture. And I love that line. And I think it's really true. And what it has to do with our conversation is that there are going to be unquestioned assumptions in the arguments that that we all make and i am a big believer in attempting to try to understand my own assumptions as well as the other person's assumptions because it makes discourse a lot cleaner and more compelling. But if the unquestioned assumption is that, are the unquestioned assumptions of critical race theory, let's like, what are the assumptions? And then let's examine each of those assumptions one at a time and see if we agree or disagree. And I believe this with with every movement, with the environmental movement, with the climate change movement, always, always, always ask, what are the assumptions here? And the second thing is, um, another person said it takes someone 10 years to change their minds. And he said that because he was very pro, he was very anti-abortion. And then 10 years later, without any discernible transition, he found himself being in the opposite position. Right. And the point the point is not the issue. The point is that for me, it doesn't usually take 10 years, but it can take, two to six years for me to change my mind. So somebody, this happens to all the time. Somebody will say something to me, and I'll say, man, I really disagree with you on that. I just, I, I, That just makes no sense to me. And then about a year later, I go up to that same person. I say, hey, I had this great idea. And then I repeat back to them what they told me a year ago, and then they laugh because they said, <laughs> Derek, I, I told you that. But the point is, that's, I think, one of the reasons that we end up often in the moment lying, telling people to shut up, is because two things. One is we don't know our unquestioned assumptions and we can't construct the arguments well enough in the moment. Two, in the moment, we're not actually interested in changing our minds because that happens so rarely. There have been like, like, okay, here's a, here's a great example. But when I was a teenager, I, I routinely, like, like almost everybody else I knew, used the F word slur for gay people. And used it just willy-nilly. It was just a generalized insult. You know, somebody misses a basket, that's what you call them in basketball. And then I learned, I got, I was maybe, I don't know, 17, 18, something like that, when I got a lesson. Many of my friends were gay. I, I I was not homophobic. It's just I used that word. And one day I was teaching a friend of mine to drive who happened to be gay, and he ran my car into a post. And I said, oh, you. And then I said the word. And he said, yes, I am. And what does that have to do with me running your car into a post? Right. And so two points here. One is, I got it. It's like, this is not just a generic slur that means you're a jerk or you're something, something. It is specifically aimed at a subset of people who are oppressed. I got that. But here's the point. It took me about a year to stop using the word after that because right. I had to metabolize it. And I'm I'm not... And now everybody's going to cancel me for yet another reason, because for God's sake, in (laughs) 1978, Derek said the F word. And but but my point is, that's how we learn. You know, you're not going to get somebody who is in Antifa who suddenly is walking down the street and goes, oh, wait a second. I get it. We're actually fascist. I mean, that takes time. And then the third thing I wanted to say about all this and censorship and everything is an exchange I had once with Jeanette Armstrong. It was a great uh Okanagan Indian writer and activist. She's really wonderful. And Gerry had written this book called In the Absence of the Sacred. And Ward Churchill had written an essay attacking Gerrymander's book. And I asked Jeanette Armstrong what she thought of Ward Churchill's essay. And she said, if Ward didn't like it, he should write his own book only better. And I love that. So... If my, some of my publishers have published some stuff that is just horrific, just horrifying. I have never once suggested to my publishers, you need to not publish that crap. What I have attempted to do is to write better books.
0: Right. Yeah, we talked about that a little bit, too. And the other thing about it, I okay, guess so I actually finally had Daryl Davis, the black man who brings people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I had him on my show. And we talked about this, and I gave him an example. It's not just about whether or not it's immoral to engage in those tactics. It's that it doesn't work to be an aggressive, mean, screaming, burning, looting, attacking. It doesn't work. And and so I gave him an analogy. I said, so let's say you took a Black Lives Matter chapter to a Ku Klux Klan rally, you know, because this man attends Ku Klux Klan rallies and gets people to leave the Ku Klux Klan. And I said, do you think if they get up and chant Black Lives Matter and, you know, scream racist, you know, slurs and stuff at them or even just white racist slurs, which are becoming more and more common, they've even created new ones like white people to speak about white people in the derogatory. You know, he's like, no, that would be absolutely horrific. He's like, that is the absolute opposite of what you should do. He's like, you're not going to accomplish anything by doing that. And the funny thing is, is that's pretty much how Black Lives Matter does everything. They, they go up, and they get militant, and they get nasty. And one of the things that um, I believe it was, there was a guy who does these parodies. He, like, pretends, like, in his parodies, he pretends to be a a newscaster caught in a hot mic, and he goes by the name Jonathan Pye. There's a video he did about President Trump, how and why. It was right after Hillary lost. And, you know, he goes on this big rant, and one of the things he said is that, you know, Not everybody who voted for Trump is a racist or a sexist or a homophobe or any of these other things. He's like, and a lot of people were just kind of sick of you guys slinging labels at them all the time. And then you yelled at them and you screamed at them and you talked to them like monsters all the time. And then eventually you think, okay, you've won because now they're not talking anymore, especially on social media. They think, oh, I must have convinced them. No, all you did is now they don't want to talk to you anymore. They're not listening to you anymore. So now they're in the voting booth. And they're thinking to themselves, what would be the best way for me to put the middle finger up at these people who've been shitting on me through the entire 2016 election? I'll just vote for President Trump. Think he'll do. And I was like, then, <laughs> so, yep, that's exactly what happened. Because I met all kinds of people who were just sick of that nonsense. They weren't in love with Donald Trump. They didn't like Hillary Clinton, and I can't blame them. You know, but the point is they did it because they just got sick of being treated like that. And that, that was what I was going to get is it's
1: not just about that it's immoral, it doesn't even work. Did we talk last time about the, uh, how the farmers, so many of them end up going to right-wing militias? No, go ahead. Okay, so Joel Dyer wrote this really interesting book back in the 90s called Harvest of Rage, and he wanted to find out why so many, during the farm crisis, why so many farmers were ending up going to the right-wing militia units. And he went in, and he had hair down to his behind, and he had an earring, and he rode a motorcycle. He'd go in these conservative towns, and as soon as he would start talking to any of the farmers, they didn't care about his politics. They just wanted to talk about the fact that they're losing land that their family has owned for 100 years. Right. And, they, and he said the problem is that if you're sitting there in a moment of crisis, and you're at your kitchen table, and you have a empty bottle of Jack Daniels there and you got a shotgun across your lap and your family's moved out tomorrow. They're going to come in and repossess the land. Um, If somebody knocks on your door and is nice to you, he said, if that person is a Mormon, you're going to become Mormon. And if that person is a right wing hate monger, you're going to become a right wing hate monger. If that person would be a lefty, you would become a lefty because that person is reaching out to you and being nice to you. And, I thought that was a brilliant and B after that, I saw this documentary on Timothy McVeigh and early Timothy McVeigh stuff. A lot of the things he was saying and writing in his journal and everything, they could have been straight out of Chomsky. It was just standard lefty anti-US imperialist stuff. And if somebody on the left would have reached out to him, he might not have blown up that building. Um, I'm not saying that, that 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 he wouldn't have, but he might not have. Um, and I'm making the same point you are that um, when people are in crisis, I mean it, one of the one of the stupidest things that I thought the Democrats did in 2016 was to start calling the right wing deplorables. It's like right. I, I, I'm sorry, this is actually what you're talking about is working class people who at one point were the backbone of the Democratic Party. And that is at the very least a tremendous tactical error. It's exactly what you said about forcing people out.
0: Well, you do you think any of those people listened to that speech and thought, damn, you're right. I should vote for Hillary.
1: (laughs) I know that when I'm called deplorable, it it certainly makes me, I mean, honestly, with all the the names, the anarchists have called me for the last 15 years, that has not made me adore anarchism. It's, it's basically (laughs) driven me out. Right. Well, and that's, the funny thing is, is that it, and I've seen that happen. I, I
0: mentioned a little bit of this before, but I've mentioned it in other podcasts, too, is that this weird effect where people are being driven out of the left by this stuff and saying that they're going to the right because of it. I'm like, OK, look, I'm on board with you about opposing, you know, the social justice inquisition. But does that suddenly mean you've changed your opinion about health care and, you know, caring about other people and I you know, like you know, socialist style? you know, programs like all of a sudden you've abandoned all of it and then they kind of come back to what I told you earlier, which is, well, God, I got so sick of watching them lie all the time and now they're lying about me. What else are they lying about? You know, and that's
1: go ahead. I completely agree with you. And the one of the most common things I hear people on the left say these days is, quote, I am politically homeless. Because they don't want to go to the right because they can't stand the sort of corporatism. They can't stand any of that stuff. But they also can't stand this authoritarianism of the sjw left that is destroying universities it's destroying discourse it's destroying everything it touches um in great measure i think because it's based on cluster b personality disorders that's a whole other discussion we can have
0: yeah we talked about that a little bit in the last show too yeah that these you know and it's funny actually that that reminds me of something we were talking about some of the problems with anarchist theory and this actually is a reference to something we talked about already but I realized later on I should have mentioned it, but like going to anarcho-capitalists, um, Murray Rothbard is one of the people that they like the most. And in one of his books, he openly states that parents should be allowed to allow their children to starve, that they should not be compelled to take care of their children. And I used that quote back on somebody who was constantly quoting Rothbard to me, and he kind of went, "Well, yeah, we uh, we don't really agree with that." I'm like oh, okay, but a minute ago you were telling me how I need to listen to everything else the guy says. You know, it's the same thing with uh, Ludwig von Mises and um, Ayn Rand, who both think that anarchists are crazy. So suggesting, and the funny thing is, ironically, when anarcho-capitalists do that, it's even funnier because um, they believe that, you know, you shouldn't have a state and everything should just be capitalism. When Mises and Rand identified Anarchists is crazy. They said you can't have capitalism without some kind of a state apparatus to keep mankind from turning into savages. Like that was Ayn Rand's almost exact words, you know, um, but, you know, kind of a mild segue. It's just a point that I had wanted to make in the last episode and I'd forgotten about it, but it's, you know, but when it comes back to if, you know, again, what does it do to our psychology as people? If we can't have these conversations, like you said, I'm going to be very careful here. You know, there are things that we're not allowed to talk about, that are just true. You know, like that's, I just had a guy on my show, his name is uh, Pastor Corey Brooks. And I discovered him because he was a black activist working in Chicago in the most violent environment we probably have in the United States. And, you know, his approach to things is so different, you know, and, and organizations like his struggle to get any kind of funding And what kind of stuff is he doing? He's introducing teenagers to tradesmen so that they can become, you know, apprentices and have real structured jobs. You know, he's addressing trying to get them out of the gang cultures, you know. And and when I shared with him, you know, my observations that I'm told are inaccurate solely because I am white, he's like, no, everything you just said is true, you know, and he's there. You know, that's another element of the the social justice politics that bothers me. It's like, I I think I mentioned earlier that I I finally found statistics about what happened to Occupy. One of the other things that they included was that there was something else that caused the division in Occupy, which was what they called the progressive stack, where people who could essentially stack up, you know, as many oppressed statuses to themselves as possible were going to get more speaking time, and that straight white males were kind of expected just to sit there and shut up and not say anything, and I'm not saying that we shouldn't be trying to make sure that everybody has speaking time. I absolutely do think we should. But we were getting to a point in Occupy Detroit in particular where the validity of your argument was being weighed on the color of your skin, of your gender, of your sexual identity, of whatever. So my argument is invalid solely because you are more oppressed than I am. You know, And that's how you end up in conversations like, um, white people are now not allowed to talk to black people about how to protest as if somehow black people innately know how to protest better and as if innately white people do not, you know, um, as and that's the relevant factor. And the reason that this is a problem, you know, and I kind of broke this down actually recently in my second episode about the definition of racism was that this is all a um uh, what do they call it it's a it's a fallacy of um, guilt by association you know that the whole structure of, of the way that whole thing works is guilt by association you're automatically on the hook for you know for things that happened 400 years ago solely due to your skin you know is just as bad as saying that you're automatically on the hook for you know something that happened when a black kid you know, maybe they stole my lawnmower or something. You can't, it, it's, just, it's not just that it's wrong, it's that it's not rational. It doesn't, that's why it's a logical fallacy. It makes no sense to suggest that somebody's point is more valid or less valid based on who they are. Now, people can have more experience with something than, than somebody else, but that doesn't change the rational or irrational nature of their statements. And if that's how we're gonna conduct ourselves, you know, one of the things I tend to point out to people is that the famines in Soviet Russia were not caused by a failure to share. They were caused by identity politics, because they murdered everybody who knew how to farm, you know, in the name of getting rid of all the wealthy landowners, you know, um, and then they were left with all the land, but they didn't know how to tend it. So that's actually what led to them not being able to make food, (laughs) you know, um, and that aspect of the, of the starvation that happened there doesn't ever get talked about. But that's another example of totally irrational politics, getting a bunch of people killed. You know, um, So did you have any thoughts on that?
1: Um, just that it's it, for intelligent occupiers of countries, when you conquer a country, uh, the smartest ones generally don't destroy the bureaucracies, but they merely convert them to current use. So, you know, if if the United States invades Iraq, God knows that would never happen. Um, (laughs) If the United States invades Iraq, and it would be smart to uh, literally keep the bureaucracy that runs the trains in place and just have them run trains for you instead of the other side, if if it can work. Um, Because of exactly what you're saying, that it takes, you know, I was reading about military... About, about militaries attacking in piecemeal versus being organized. So I was reading a lot about that a few years ago. And that I was reading about that in terms of Antifa because they explicitly eschew large-scale organization, they say. Right. And, um, and one, one article I was reading was about how difficult it is and how much uh, experience it takes to have a set of staff sergeants break camp and have soldiers move out in an orderly fashion without having traffic jams. And that's a completely trivial thing, but it takes a long time to learn. That is a skill that I would not have. And if you put me in charge, you know, my army has to move from location A to location B really fast because there's something happening over in location B I guarantee there would be traffic jammed left and right because I wouldn't know how to do it. Right. Or if you wanted me to organize the uh, the food, the kitchen to feed ten thousand people, I would have no clue. So the the people who provision and who cook the food are just as important as anybody else. And my point on that is that I'm just I'm just riffing off of them killing the landowners. That that if you're going to kill them not suggesting one should. But if you're going to kill them, you wait until the apprenticeship of the other people, is, of your people, is done.
0: And preferably, you know, especially during the time period that that goes on, you may have actually changed those people's mindset. And then they maybe want to be part of what you're doing. You know, that's honestly, because ironically, the same thing is actually happening in South Africa right now due to the identity politics of them throwing all the white farmers out. Um, And now, ironically, they're in a very awkward position that some of these African countries are literally contacting these people who fled to like England and Australia and asking them to come back because they created famines of their own countries. And and the main reason I brought that up was just to point out that it was identity politics that got people people killed in the Soviet Union. And there's a lot of people who are caught on this train, so to speak. So, for example, when I did my first video about the definition of racism they suggest to you that somebody cannot be racist unless they possess power, which is not in any credible dictionary, but they are attempting to lie it into truth, like literally following the the Nazi propaganda, big lie formula. And they will tell you with authority that that is true, that it requires power plus prejudice. Um, And if you argue with them, then they'll tell you that you're ignorant and that you need to take sociology classes. So I investigated this and it's actually only a part of the sociology community that agrees with this it's not even all sociologists which is also why it hasn't been mentioned in any of the credible dictionaries you know but the only effect that i have seen because they say well we need to address that it this issues of systemic racism and power and i'm like there's no reason you can't do that with the definition of racism that already exists it isn't necessary for you to suggest that anybody who doesn't have power is not racist and the only effect that i have ever seen from them doing that is that it creates a situation that encourages people of color to be racist because they're being taught that they can't be. You know, I started a video recently because they were suggesting, for example, that supposedly the racism between blacks and Asians that goes on in their communities is white supremacy. <laughs> like they're, they're blaming that on white people, too. Um, and I, I studied it and I even read some of the actual papers about it because people have done studies. You know, and the truth is, is that there are other reasons for it. And it's the same reasons that racism develops in a lot of places is that they're competing over resources, competing over jobs, you know, and racism can sometimes activate that tribal instinct, you know, that we talked about before that can cause you to identify somebody as an other. And then you just start looking for reasons to dislike them. You know, um, it certainly isn't white people's fault, you know, but, you know, but, but the reason I brought that up is that I actually started that video with a video of a black man, um, repeatedly saying a racist slur towards Asian people to a, and to an Asian police officer. And I think he said it probably about 300 times over the course of this video. And this guy, ironically white is riding by on his bicycle. He's like, Hey man, don't do that. That's racist. That's fucked up. And the guy literally defended himself by saying black people can't be racist. So (laughs) he can spew, you know, the CH, you know, word for Chinese people over and over and over again and not be racist. And, I played another video that there was a guy who is a professor of African-American studies um, and he was on C-SPAN shortly after the Katrina incident. And one of the things he said was that they are concerned that we will find the one solution to the problem. And the solution to the problem is that we have to exterminate white people off of the face of the planet to solve the world's problems. Um, And you guys can see the video of that. I'm not making it up, you know, but the point is, is that I then ask the people watching my video because I've been told that man can't be racist either. So when does he become racist? When, When do we flip the switch? Is it when he's talking about doing these things or is it when he can do these things? Because if that's what you're suggesting, then the next question that I always ask is, then when were the Nazis racist? Because they started with no power. Hitler wrote Mein Kampf from a prison cell. And they don't want to answer me. Because they don't obviously ever want the words the Nazis were at one time not racist to come out of their mouth. But again, that's the only effect of changing the meaning of that word. And ironically, the only effect that I've ever seen of that, and Daryl Davis agreed with me about this, was that if you encounter black people who are racist to you, it is far more likely that you, as a person they are being racist to, is going to be racist in return. Who benefits from that? It certainly isn't black people, you know, if we're if we're supposed to be stamping out racism. And I honestly feel, and this has been my feeling, you know, since like towards the end of the Obama administration, when I watched a documentary where the Ku Klux Klan had become so pathetic that they were talking about eliminating racism from their platform. And even some of them were even talking about allowing people of color to join the Ku Klux Klan and that it would become more like a unified workers movement, you know, with a right lean. And Then we do all of this stuff that we're doing now. And now all of a sudden, supposedly racism is alive and well and worse than it's ever been or some of the other crazy words that they use about it. And I'll say one more thing in this when we talk about, you know, again, lies of the left. I did a very detailed video about the truth about police shootings. I took out all the real statistics. And right now in the media, terms like genocide are being used about police shootings. And I want to say the same thing I, did, I said in the video. All deaths matter. No police shooting is irrelevant. And obviously, we, it deserves attention. We should try to seek to see to it that as few people of any color are killed by police as possible. But the truth is, statistically, people are more likely to drown in a swimming pool, more likely to die in a house fire, more likely to die in childbirth. Like, there are hard, crunchable numbers you can look at. You know, and again, that doesn't make the black deaths at the hands of police irrelevant, but it does beg the question, who's who's lying
1: about it and why? Right. Yeah. Um, You know, I I think that it's, uh, you know, to go back to the beginning of this conversation, and I'm going to have to go in a second because I have to run some errands.
0: No, I understand. We've been on for a while.
1: But but I think that um, the important thing for me is that we address these issues as honestly as we can. And whether or not, uh, I think, I, I think that whether or not racism requires power is an important question. And I think that it's also, uh, it's also not, not, not the point here because the real point of all of this is that you should and you just defended your position using using uh using facts, using anecdotes, using logic. And what needs to happen is if somebody disagrees with you, instead of calling you a racist, they need to rebut your facts with other facts and they need to uh, assemble an argument, and each of you find out where your assumptions are. And so my point is, I think that, that it's really important that you said all that in terms of modeling the sort of discourse that needs to happen if the left is to survive.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. And that was the big reason that I had such a problem with it, is only that if we continue to make lies the frame by which we do things, how are we supposed to trust ourselves to come up with policies if we can't even clearly discuss what's actually happening? If we are inclined to lie or to exaggerate, you know, do you want anybody who's lying and exaggerating to say to make policies about your water? You know, <laughs> well, you've already seen what that looks like, right? Well, they do.
1: They do. Pollution. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so thank you. I know that you got to go. Um, I hope that, you know, we can have another conversation sometimes. I think this went really well. Yeah, that'd be great. And, um, Thank you everybody for tuning in to V Radio. If this is your first time checking us out, again, go to V- or minus radio.us where you will find all the various ways that you can catch this podcast and my YouTube channel. Thanks again for tuning in.